it sent all that stuff up into the atmosphere. And as all those little bits and pieces start coming down, they start generating friction, which generates heat, which create an infrared pulse, which basically raised the air temperature around the planet to 500 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So basically it's an oven on broil. So even though this was like very bad locally, we had a lot of local effects like mega tsunamis and things like that. It really was, if even if you're on the other side of the planet, this would have affected you 66 million years ago. And it was survival by literal inches. If you could get just maybe about three inches underground, that was enough to buffer the effects of the heat or underwater. But then you have to survive through the impact winter where ecosystems are collapsing because plants are dying. So this is really kind of amazing that anything was able to survive this. About 75% of species that we know that were alive at the end of the Cretaceous uh, perished, basically within the space of about three years, which is incredibly quick for a mass extinction. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like and chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHS Stores at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with Riley Black. She has been a fossil fanatic based in Utah where she writes her popular blog for publications such as Wired, National Geographic, and Scientific American for more than a decade. Her fossil-filled tweets have led Business Insider to call her one of the top science social media wizards, and HLN has dubbed her one of Twitter's eight coolest geeks. In between blogs, she is a freelancer for a variety of publications, from National Geographic to Slate. She has written multiple books, and today we're going to talk about her book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginning of Our World, where she walks readers through what happened in the days, the years, the centuries, and the millions of years after the impact. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, share, review. Every little bit helps. You can find more information at podcasttheway.com. Again, that's podcasttheway.com. Like about your book, why did you even get into dinosaurs in the first place? What made this topic so interesting to you? I mean, I've loved dinosaurs since I was a kid. Um, I remember... (laughs) I went through a couple. <laughs> of course, thank you, Joe. Did he like uh, dinosaurs too? Yeah, uh, he actually <laughs> comes with me on some digs. So he's my German shepherd named Jet, and uh, he comes out with me sometimes doing some field work. There you um, go. Saves you does... the effort. You don't have to use the shovel as much. <laughs> it's actually sometimes a little bit difficult because he's he's um, relatively dark in color. He gets hot very easily under the sun. So it's usually where can I park the dog and still go look for the fossils that I need to. But yeah, I, from what I recall, you know, I went through a couple of phases when I was very young. I loved, you know, trucks for a second. I loved elephants for another second. And then it was dinosaurs really like big and loud seemed to be the things that I really was interested in for a little bit. And that fascination just always stuck. Like I remember seeing their skeletons in museums or just seeing them in movies or, you know, on TV documentaries and just wondering about them, wondering what they sounded like, what they looked like, like, how do we know what we know? 
but uh, I didn't find a lot of encouragement per se. I grew up in a suburb in New Jersey and New Jersey actually does have some wonderful fossil sites, but most people I knew were like, you need to go out West if you want to study this kind of stuff. And that didn't seem like a possibility. So it was always kind of like a personal fascination until I started going to college. And I was kind of struggling in my major. I was studying ecology. It was a different form of ecology than I wanted to study, but I used that institutional access to read the books and papers where a lot of the research about dinosaurs and fossils were being published because I wanted to see like the what what's actually being said. I don't want the translation. I want to know what paleontologists are writing about. And I would I would write about what I was learning as a way to, to remember that. And that really cultivated my skill as a writer. And it opened up this whole career pathway. So it was really like this long fuse between that initial fascination and when I was able to turn it into a career. Gotcha. And I can only imagine that such a broad topic in itself, dinosaurs, was there a particular field or like research papers you really dug into that caught your interest? I mean, I was really interested in dinosaurs in particular, particularly like animals. Like I remember specifically, I wanted to read a paper about a dinosaur called Acrocanthosaurus. So it's uh, a real cousin of Allosaurus that lived, you know, tens of millions of years later. It's really noteworthy for being relatively large, this big carnivore with this high spine on its back. And I didn't know a whole lot about it. I knew it existed. And I knew that paleontologists had named it a few decades before, but I didn't know like, okay, well, like, how much of the skeleton do we know? What did this animal actually look like? So I remember downloading the descriptions for those, the skeletons that were known and really being fascinated by like, oh, okay, like we have these components, but maybe not some of these other parts of the skeleton. And this is where it relates to other forms of dinosaurs. And I remember that striking me quite a bit, like in terms of feeling like, okay, now I feel like I'm starting to understand how this logic works and where this information is coming from. Um, but really it's dinosaurs and big evolutionary changes were, were the things I was certainly fascinated with. I mean, I was in college. Uh, I started in 2001 and I was yeah. um, basically an undergrad for about seven or eight years in various capacities. It took me a while because I had to work at the same time. And um, yeah. yeah, it was kind of a, a challenge, but you know, during that time, this was like the era of like, the Kitzmiller-Dover trial, where um, you know intelligent design advocates tried to uh, basically teach creationism in schools, and there was a oh, lot of gotcha. pushback. So the I basic evolution, and that we have excellent evidence for evolution, especially from the fossil record, it was very much like on my mind at the time because like there was so much in the news. It was like this big fight that was happening in school districts and in uh, courtrooms yeah, across the what? country. One thing that confused me about that, too, is I know somebody who doesn't believe in evolution, but they believe evolution happens at a cellular level. So, like, the cells can mutate, but not the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, which doesn't really follow. And and there are some wonderful examples from the fossil record, like the evolution of whales, for example, that this was a total mystery for you know, more than a century and starting in the 1970s, we started to get the critical fossils that showed us like within about the space of maybe five to 10 million years, you go from this land dwelling little deer like thing into something that's living in the water full time. And that we have, it's not just this straight line progression, but you have this kind of profusion of like amphibious early whales. And they all tell us something different about how this transition happened. You can do that for 
you know, the evolution of birds, the evolution of whales, like I just mentioned, the evolution of early humans, um, the evolution of elephants and horses or other great examples. Actually, my first book written in stone was based around these big evolutionary changes. And that's really what I started to get in mind as I was reading these papers that I wanted to really synthesize this information and present, like, not just what we know, but how we've come to understand it and the relationship between sort of chance discoveries and working that into theory. So that was really like what drove my initial fascination with it. And then once I became established as a writer, uh, once I started you know, blogging about this, this was during a time where science blogs were relatively common and magazines were investing a lot yeah. in bloggers, um, really gave me a platform and connections I wouldn't otherwise have. So it all came together at just the right time to open up this career. And then even as blogging has faded back in, in recent years, I've been able to still, like I still write and freelance for, you know, publications like National Geographic and Scientific American Smithsonian. There's always something new to, to talk about. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to just turn that fascination into something that, you know, it, it lets me enthuse about a lot of these wonderful new discoveries that are just, they're happening, you know, on a weekly basis. Yeah. I saw um, one thing you like to do is you go on a uh, volunteer trips to help mm -hmm. like dig up. And you mentioned you go with your dog too, even what does this even look like today? Like, have we found enough fossils or are you still finding some new skeletons and you're like, wow, I just found this new dinosaur that existed some million years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's always more to find. So a new dinosaur species, and we're just talking about dinosaurs, not all the other sort of innumerable forms of ancient life that, that we know of. But if we're just talking dinosaurs alone, a new dinosaur species is named on the average about every two weeks. Oh, and wow. based upon all the rock formations that we know exist on the planet that have been mapped in one way or the other that are of the right age and the right rock type, and sort of how many dinosaur species that we tend to find like within the dinosaur community, what's called a fauna. So like all these associated organisms that you have, the apex predators and the big herbivores and the smaller species that kind of live alongside them, that if you take those numbers and you basically project that onto what we haven't even been able to look at yet, we've probably only discovered about a third of the species that is possible to discover. What and about with the water, too? Because I hear, like, the ocean is mostly undiscovered. So I have to imagine we've only discovered, what, like a tenth of those animals? So, I mean, marine sediments, that, that's a whole other story. So we have no fully aquatic dinosaurs, but in terms of, like, marine fossils, there's some places that are absolutely rife with it. But when you think about it this way, this is something that we've known about since the 19th century, where a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all life that's ever existed gets to be preserved of, as fossils. And then a fraction of that, uh, and, and before I go to the next point, let me put, when I say preserved as fossils, I mean that they lived in a place where sediment is being laid down and they could be buried and they could be basically kept safe in the fossil record. Like we don't have a fossil record of dinosaurs in the mountains because mountains are erosional environments. There's no sediment being laid down. So there were certainly dinosaurs that lived in mountain and alpine habitats, but we're never gonna know what they were because there just wasn't something in those habitats to preserve them. So we're already dealing with like all these like pockets at any given time around the planet where fossils can be made. And in those places, we only get a fraction of the animals that are, you know, plants, fungi, living things that lived there. And then of that fraction, only a certain amount eventually gets, you know, pushed up in a place that we can access it. And then from there, even a fraction of that 
has been looked at by paleontologists and geologists over time. And there, you can go to a field site and say, there's nothing here. And then the next season, somebody goes by and says, Oh, there's a dinosaur right there. So there's always something new to find. There's so much out there. Yeah. Like the way growing up, the famous ones are like T-Rex, Raptor, Stegosaurus, any of those, there could be a whole nother famous or crazy dinosaur up in the mountains, along with many others in that whole web of that food chain. And we would never know about it. It's impossible. For certain habitats, we're never going to find them just because there wasn't anything to lay down sediment. That Basically, you need something to bury um, the bodies of those organisms. So in an ocean environment, you like have lots of sand and sediment or clay or silt. Uh, and on, a la- on land, you would have something like a stream bed or a pond or a lake or even a big sand dune. Something where sediment is covering up basically organisms on a regular basis. Whereas if the main thing that's happening in that environment is erosion, that basically that environment is being broken down like a mountain or like some high deserts, for example, those fossils, we're never going to know about them. This is something that we see like at the end of the Cretaceous where, you know, people have done counts of dinosaur diversity and they say, okay, 10 million years before the impact, we have lots and lots and lots of different dinosaur species all over the place. And then, by the end of the Cretaceous, 66 million years ago, we have a smaller number of species that live in more places. Well, what are we basing that on? We're basing it on like what's preserved in the rock. When you look at that earlier time window, the 75 million year time window, there's this Western interior seaway that splits North America in half. So you have all these floodplains and all these environments to the sides of it where sediment is being laid down, basically on the margins of the seaway. But as that drains off the continent, you lose those habitats where you're getting a lot of sediment being laid down. So there are actually much fewer places where fossils can be made. So it's not so much that dinosaur diversity is necessarily dropped, it's that the places that we have windows into have decreased because there just aren't as many places where fossilization can happen. So these are all the things that we're constantly trying to figure out in the field of paleontology. It's like the fossil record can't necessarily be read literally. You're always looking at it in terms of, okay, like what am I missing and why am I missing it? And what does it mean? Gotcha. So it's not that the population shrunk. It's just that we don't have as much as many fossils. And one thing that shocks me about this, too, was I saw an article where scientists determined the meteor came in the spring after Mm -hmm. analyzing the remains of fishes that died just after the impact. Mm -hmm. How could you this many million years ago, how could you decide that it happened in the spring versus the fall or winter? Yeah, that was a really clever paper, and it's something where it seems like, okay, that seems oddly specific, but it makes sense, because those particular fish that became preserved, there are two things about them that were really important, and it's something that relates to the fact that as fascinated as we are with dinosaurs, many of the stranger forms of prehistoric life, the fact is that we don't, they don't really tell us a whole lot about the environments that they lived in, because we don't understand their biology fully yet. So you can't say that like, oh, we've found an Apatosaurus. We know Apatosaurus likes dry environments. They like upland environments. So if you find one, you, you know what the environment is that's around them. But you can do that for things like beetles and frogs and fish and things that are relatively familiar or things that have been around for a very long time where you can say, okay, like I've found a tortoise that's very much related to today's desert tortoises. So this is probably a desert environment or like beetle species saying like this beetle species is still alive today and it only exists in these temperature tolerances in this kind of forest. So if we're finding this beetle, then we have this environment. So those fish 
the two things about them were one, they had little glass spherules, basically impact debris in their gills. They were filter feeding fish. So as these spherules are basically dropping into the water, they're being picked up by the fish in one way or another and stuck uh, in their gills. So we know that they died within a very short time of impact, probably minutes to hours. The other part of it is there are things like paddlefish and sturgeons, which are still alive today. And they seem to have grown very much the same way. So even though they lived a very, very long time ago, they weren't necessarily living fossils, but they were very similar to their living relatives. And by looking at the sort of the isotopic signatures in their uh, in their bones, and also like whether they were growing, because fish sometimes have cyclical growth, they'll grow more in the springtime, and they'll slow it down in the winter when there's not as much food. That's what allowed paleontologists to say, okay, we know that these fish died within a a short amount of time of impact. If they were growing more quickly, that means there was more food. So that likely means it's springtime. So it's this kind of like deductive kind of like yeah. murder mystery almost process where you start stitching together all these lines of information and then that bigger conclusion starts to become apparent. Gotcha. And you used a big term back there, isotopic signatures. What, yes. what is that? Because I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So an isotope is basically, it's a, like a chemical element that it's a little bit heavier. It's got, I, if I remember correctly, a bit more neutrons um, than um, what we would consider like the standard version of like carbon or oxygen or strontium. So all these elements. And those elements, they get taken up by organisms. They get taken up by like plants from the soil that they grow in and incorporated into their leaves. When an animal drinks water, it's getting oxygen isotopes from that water. And you can, they basically form like a geochemical signature that they're related to certain temperatures, to certain forms of photosynthesis, to certain prey animals, if you're a carnivore. So if you basically know like, okay, we're finding like this isotope of carbon, and we know that that isotope of carbon only comes from plants that photosynthesize in this particular way. So we can say it's like a succulent or versus like a leafy plant or a grass or something like that. So if we find that signature of carbon inside the bones of an herbivorous animal and say, okay, they probably had a diet that was primarily focused on these plants. So it's basically things that these geochemical signatures that exist all around us constantly, they get worked into our bones and our teeth, basically as we consume things. So and this has been used as, for people as well. I wrote a book called Skeleton Keys and had a whole chapter about Richard III, who was you know the famous king who was lost and then found basically underneath a parking lot in England. And they did isotopic analysis on his bones. And they compared that to historical records of where he was supposedly grown up and what he was supposedly eating. And it seemed to match where basically you see the shift in the chemical signatures in his skeleton when basically he started to become brought into the nobility and drinking wine more often and drinking like a broader array of grain, uh, grains and meats and things like that. So this is like happening to all of us all the time. And it's become enough of a process where if you can find these signatures, you can say a lot about how a particular organism was living and where they're kind of getting their nutrition from. Gotcha. From the impact itself, besides the evolution side, did that impact cause any mutations? Like, I know if a nuclear reactor explodes, you'll see some long-term effects. Could that mm -hmm. giant impact have some impact on the animals that weren't close enough to die or the ones that weren't too far away? 
So there wouldn't be anything in terms of mutation because this wasn't something that was radioactive. And even if it was radioactive, that would cause mutations in the cells or in the gametes of these particular organisms. But it's not kind of like in the movies where you'd have like, you know, a mutated dinosaur running around. It's more like they might not be able to reproduce. or That would be the next Jurassic World. (laughs) Yeah, basically that's the way that they're going. Um, But the effects were global where you had this, you know, a seven mile wide asteroid. It was probably what's called a carbonaceous chondrite. So that basically means it's a specific form of asteroid that's left over from the formation of our solar system is a chunk of rock that like didn't get incorporated into a planet or into a moon or something like that. So it was just kind of hanging out the edge of our solar system. And that's what hit the planet 66 million years ago in the area of what's now the Yucatan Peninsula. And it hit with such speed and such force that it's millions of cubic miles of rock. It's like the numbers are absolutely absurd. What this, like the amount of force and the amount of rock that this thing disturbed and all the fallout from it. So you have all this rock, you have this huge rock hit the planet. It pulverizes so much of what we call the target rock, the rock that it hit. It sent all that stuff up into the atmosphere. And as all those little bits and pieces started coming down, they started generating friction, which generates heat which created an infrared pulse, which basically raised the air temperature around the planet to 500 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So basically it's an oven on broil. So if you were caught out in the open, if you're a tyrannosaur or you're a horned dinosaur or you're just any kind of large organism that either can't get in a burrow underground or can't get underwater, within hours of that impact, it's impossible to survive on the surface. It's so hot that forests are spontaneously erupting into flames. And that lasted for about a day. And after that, you had an impact winter for about three years where photosynthesis was curtailed. You have all these chemical compounds that are reflecting sunlight basically back you know, out into space and all the smoke and debris. And that lasted for three years. So even though this was like very bad locally, we had a lot of local effects like mega tsunamis and things like that. It really was, if even if you're on the other side of the planet, this would have affected you 66 million years ago. And it was survival by literal inches. If you could get just maybe about three inches underground, that was enough to buffer the effects of the heat or underwater. It's very similar. But then you have to survive through the impact winter where ecosystems are collapsing because plants are dying. So this is really kind of amazing that anything was able to survive this. About 75% of species that we know that were alive at the end of the Cretaceous uh, perished basically within the space of about three years, which is incredibly quick for a mass extinction. Yeah, I remember I was looking out the window earlier today, preparing for the episode, thinking, and I couldn't even visualize how big of an explosion that would be. Like, looking out, I could picture it being big, but I can't picture it being, like, I think it was the size of Mount Everest, was it? It's not quite the size of Mount Everest, but it was pretty huge. It's something in terms of, like, the force it created, because it's not just, like, the size of it. It's how fast it's going, and the Earth is also moving very fast and, you know, rotating as it goes. And all these things kind of came together. So if you have two incredibly fast things interacting with each other, it creates a whole, like, a lot, a lot, a lot of force. This is something where... You know, back during when this hypothesis was coming forward, this is sort of like at the peak of the Cold War. And paleontologists sometimes say, like, if you were to take the entire nuclear arsenals of the United States and then then Soviet Union and set them off at the same time, that the force created by this impact was still many times greater than that. Like I said, these numbers are absolutely 
ridiculous in terms of their magnitude. So this is something where, you, you know, if you were standing in ancient Montana, you would have felt within about 15 minutes the shockwaves and the earthquakes that were created by this impact, that they traveled that far and that quickly. I'm going to say the name wrong, because I always do, but you know Kursigwarts, that uh, is a German YouTube uh, channel? I don't know that one, actually. Oh, they're great. I highly recommend it. They'll dive into some random topics. And they actually did uh, one episode about the dinosaurs and what happened before and after, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, then I won't reference that episode, but in terms of the debris just creating that much friction in the air, so that was something that happened like a few minutes after the impact, I'm assuming, to the end of the day how long until it starts cooling down and how low did it eventually cool down to i don't know how long it took for temperatures to what we might call normalize um it probably took a couple of days for it to entirely go back to normal but the pulse itself the sort of the superheated air that would have been done within about 24 hours within about the first day after impact that you have all this friction being created um, very, very quickly. It also would have dissipated because once all those pieces of rock have fallen back down to earth, they're not generating any more friction. You're not generating any more heat. So that would have eventually died down. Um, in terms of how cold it got, temperatures dropped by um, maybe 20 degrees or so from the, the global average at that time, which is really cold. If, if you're evolved to live in your particular habitat and temperatures for the next several years drop that low, it's going to be hard to survive unless you have some kind of pre-adaptation or some kind of way to get around that. And that's part of this difficulty as well, that we have animals that undoubtedly survived the infrared pulse, but then they have to make it through this ecosystem collapse where things are getting colder. And it's kind of strange because for a long time, there was this idea that these eruptions in what's now India, this area called the Deccan Traps, were like a competitor for the asteroid impact as the hypothesis for what caused the end Cretaceous extinction. Because um, in the past, at other, at other times, we've had incredible volcanic activity that created mass extinctions, like at the end of the Permian period, 250 million years ago, around the, begin, at the end of the Triassic and the beginning of the Jurassic, about 200 million years ago. Those are volcanic-based mass extinctions. But it turns out that all the greenhouse gas outpouring, all the methane and carbon dioxide that was being basically pumped into the air by these volcanic eruptions in India, um, that they warmed the atmosphere a little bit more than would have otherwise been the case. So basically you have the effects of the asteroid impact really cooling things down, but you have the effects of the volcanic activity warming things up a little bit. So instead of being extinction triggers, the volcanic eruptions for once actually like yeah. gave life a little bit of a reprieve. So they actually kind of saved a lot of life. This thing that caused these mass extinctions earlier was what yeah. helped a lot of animals stay alive. Yeah, it kind of counteracted the worst effects uh, of that impact winter, which you know it's estimated lasted about three years, but it was really severe. This, there was a paper that came out uh, in the past year or so about these little algae called coccoliths. It's a little disc, basically, that's a kind of photosynthetic algae in most cases. And they make these little spheres called coccolithospheres. And they still live in our oceans today. They're an important part of, of our seas. They help form the foundation of a lot of ecosystems. But if you blot out the sunlight to that degree, photosynthesizing organisms, they can't make food. They die off. And we see this with the coccoliths and that the photosynthetic ones 
basically go extinct very, very quickly after the impact. The only ones that really survive and tend to do well are those are what we call mixotrophs in that they can both photosynthesize and make their own food, but they can also feed on organic debris that's just kind of in the environment. So they're more like an omnivore in a sense, even though they're these little algae things are not an animal, they're closer to a plant. Um, and it's those mixotrophs that made it through. And then when the sunlight came back and then when the photosynthesis kicked up again, they set the basis for this new sort of profusion of, of new species and allowed e ocean ecosystems to rebuild. But that's something where if they hadn't just happened to have this ability of being able to switch from photosynthesis to feeding on organic debris, oceans might have entirely collapsed and gone back to like a single celled state, which hasn't been seen for about 500 million years. So a lot of this was really just like happenstance. There's no way to prepare for it. It's just, you know, life is just making it through. There are a whole bunch of different challenges that pop up and they're just so happen to be organisms that for one reason or another, able to survive, that they had an adaptation or a diet or a behavior that allowed them to make it through that particular challenge and survive. Yeah, I remember, I think I saw 90% of photoplankton died off. And off the top of my head, I know deep down towards the crust, like deep underwater, there are those little vents of, you know what I'm talking about, where that hot water comes out and there's little organisms around there. Those yeah. are like the only ones I can picture making it. But did every plant that, besides the one you mentioned, every plant that photosynthesized and used the sun to exist, did they all die off? So there was a mass die off of plants, not only from the infrared pulse, but from that impact winter. But that doesn't mean that all the plant species went extinct. Some plant species certainly did, but many made it through. There are certain plants around today. There's one called Metasequoia, um, basically like a big redwood that was around at the end of the Cretaceous. We can still find it in forests now. It's kind of its own story in that it was described as a fossil first, and then it was discovered alive in a forest in China. Um, in some botanical gardens, if you go, they'll have these, these trees. So they really are ancient. It's kind of like looking at the equivalent of looking at a triceratops or something from the end of the Cretaceous. They've been around for that long. And the way that many of these plants survived is like in the soil, there's a natural seed bank in that like the seeds and the sort of reproductive parts of plants are, you know, they remain in the soil and they were shielded by the infrared pulse and they could wait it out basically that those seeds could wait until conditions started to become more favorable some plants even like ginkgos so we have one species of ginkgo alive today there used to be a lot more in the past but one common feature of ginkgos that we know now is that they have this kind of basically this root storage unit so like at the base of a ginkgo tree if you ever see one it seems to bulge out a bit and that bulge is full of starch and full of basically dormant buds. So that way, if that tree dies, it can basically grow anew all over again. There was actually a ginkgo tree that was destroyed by uh, the awful bombings at uh, Hiroshima. And it was able to come back basically after the atomic bomb was dropped and the devastation that ensued, that that tree came back to life because that storage chamber was there and allowed it to thrive. So that's a really powerful example of like how bad things can get and plants can come back. So Many of the organisms that make it through were not the most charismatic. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the strangest. They're often kind of like on the sidelines of the Mesozoic world, but they had sort of adaptations for survival that allowed them to make it through. Like if you think even about animals, you know, there are a number of like alligator and crocodile relatives 
that survived the Cretaceous extinction. Yeah, so why do they, we still have those versus all the other ones? Yeah. So, and that's a great question because crocodiles and alligators are also archosaurs. They belong to this group. They're basically archosaurs are the group that if you take crocodiles and alligators and you take birds and you take them back to the last common ancestor, that's archosauria, this group of ruling reptiles to which dinosaurs and pterosaurs belong. And most of them are gone, but we have crocs and we have birds. In terms of some of our favorite little um, freshwater environment critters like crocs and alligators and turtles and things like that, they're ectothermic and likely were at that time as well. So if you're talking about like grand evolutionary patterns, if you're an ectotherm, you know, you're not generally moving very fast. You're getting your, uh, your body heat from the surrounding environment, whether that's basking in the sun or the temperature of the water or what have you. We often think of them kind of as being not as exciting or as interesting as like, you know, the warm blooded dinosaurs that are running out all over the place. But during a mass extinction, it's to your advantage if you can kind of hibernate. And you don't need very much food. And if you get one meal that that can last you for weeks to months at a time, whereas if you're a warm-blooded animal, if you're like a T-Rex or something, not only are you big, but you have to eat constantly to fuel your metabolism. Um, You're always hungry. You're always needing food. So under pressure is actually many of the organisms that we think of kind of as in the background or that, you know, have slower life cycles or metabolisms that are able to do a lot better. I picture that being a factor, too, with that debris heating up the uh, air way back when it's like 500 degrees Fahrenheit, because if you're an animal that, well, did that even make a difference, actually, because it's just at such a point or were animals that could sort of shed the heat better adapted to survive that initial point? So that heat plus, I mean, that's so high that that's like what you broil a chicken at. Like, it doesn't matter whether you have, you can cool yourself down efficiently. It's just, it's so hot that there's unless you're an extremophile bacteria, there's, there's no way to get around it. It was really a matter of like, was there, did you have a buffer? Were you shielded by something that was going underwater or going into a burrow? And this was a matter of survival afterwards. So birds are another great example of this in another direction, not in terms of body temperature, but prior to impact, you have like, you know, little velociraptor like things. So like toothy feathered dinosaurs, and we had toothed birds and then we also had beaked birds at the end of the Cretaceous, but it's only beaked birds that survive. So we have these three very similar groups of organisms, uh, basically of dinosaurs, and yeah. only one made it. So what made the difference? And the current working hypothesis is that beaked birds, they were already evolved to eat seeds and nuts and basically hard things that they had, you know, a crop and a gastric mill and like basically all this stuff to like break, to pluck and break down hard food, hard plant foods. Whereas if you have teeth, those birds and those raptor-like dinosaurs, they were carnivores. They needed insects to eat. They needed lizards and snakes and small mammals and things like that, which weren't really around anymore after the impact and during that impact winter that all those groups of organisms either went extinct or they were so reduced in their populations that there wasn't enough food. So this was a matter of like beak birds millions of years before impact had evolved the ability to survive on plant foods while their close relatives continue to be carnivores. And then under pressure, it's those birds that are able to basically dip into like that seed bank to basically dip into this existing resource that we're able to survive. Whereas if you have to hunt for food, well, there's no food to hunt. So it's all these sort of happenstances that allowed survival of these various groups. Yeah, it sounds like mostly these scavengers are the ones that can pick apart little 
things they can survive on are the ones that fare the best. And that's, oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just, it's not even so much scavenging because like there wasn't a whole lot to scavenge. It was more just foods that they exist. Like what is going to survive through a forest fire or what is going to survive after a catastrophe like this? And that there are still foods to have, but if you basically, if you're any kind of carnivore or you require a lot of sort of protein in your diet, there's not going to be very much there. Uh, We see things like this, even with leaves, like with insects and their mass extinction. Insects went through a mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous. And we document this through damage on leaves. So, you know, before the impact, we can look at Cretaceous leaves and see, okay, this one's like a caterpillar. It's kind of eating the margins. This one's like a leaf miner. It's kind of burrowing through this leaf. This one's using a leaf as its nest. All those kinds of damage kind of disappear, but then they reappear again about a million years later in the Paleocene. And what that tells us is, that many of these specialized roles, the insects that they were doing them, they went extinct. But the survivors who were more generalists and could get by doing just about anything, they started to basically re-evolve those same niches, those same ecological roles in the million years that followed. So you had kind of this reinvention of what previously existed. So a lot of it's not even so much scavenging, it's just having a form of life or a diet that it relies on something that's kind of ever present. That's something that's much more available and doesn't require like going out and finding it. Gotcha. And I have to think that the animals by the Arctic or Antarctica, did they fare better? Cause at that point they're already in that, they're already kind of prone for that situation you just mentioned. I feel like. Yeah. Well, during the ancient past, you know, the, during the end of the Cretaceous, we started to get some more polar ice again, but it was still quite a bit warmer than it is now. And you would have still have the seasons of darkness because that has to do with, um, you know, the way the earth rotates and our position, you know, relative to the sun. But in terms of survival, I mean, we know that there are Arctic dinosaurs and we know that the marine reptiles in Antarctica and various other forms of life at the end of the Cretaceous and they went extinct as well. Um, so this was something that really affected the entire planet. And we don't know a whole lot about places beyond sort of Western, the Western United States right now, because that's just where our best windows into this event are. So it might have played out slightly differently in other places. But in terms of just like, you know, there's always this idea, like, did the non-avian dinosaurs, did something like a triceratops survive somewhere else for a little bit longer? Yeah. And that's relatively unlikely because the global effects were so stark that there wasn't really a way to, to get around those. So, you know, maybe the impact winter wasn't as harsh in some places. Maybe, um, you know, the forest fires weren't as prolific in some places. But overall, like the main aspects of the impact aftermath in terms of like that infrared pulse and photosynthesis shutting down, that those would have been so present all over the planet that there wasn't really a way to get away from those. One thing I noticed about your book is you actually sort of take the approach of a different animal for each mm-hmm. chapter and like mm-hmm. following through their first person of this offend or like this offend or if they're in this location mm-hmm. was that a part of the reason why to like sort of see how this animal would fare here and was there a big difference between different time frames i wanted to pick different organisms to tell different and important parts of the story so in the beginning obviously you know we want to know what happened 
to our favorite dinosaurs and why they went extinct and what they would have seen or, or witnessed. So I picked the various dinosaur species that I did because I felt like they said something about the environment. So the second chapter, um, it starts off with an Edmontosaurus, which is this one of these duck-billed dinosaurs, basically. And the dinosaur, as I wrote, him kind of as a character had this lice infection and he was kind of grazing with this herd and was able to say, okay, this is kind of what the ecosystem is like. And herbivores are so important to their ecosystems in terms of like, they literally shape the landscape based on where they eat and if they push over trees and where they leave their dung and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I could contrast that later in the book with like, okay, now without these big dinosaurs, this is how the forest is different. This is how the forest changed. So that one was a case of like really juxtaposition. Like I'm saying, this is like the current baseline. And now this is going to be very different in a million years later when you don't have big animals, forests grow much denser and they provide a lot more sort of habitat for mammals to start to proliferate into. So it was that, that aspect was really what made me choose the organisms that I did, whether it was a fern or an insect or a frog or a T-Rex or something like that. Um, it was like, what do they tell us about the environment? and how it changed. And there are some things that are, you know, I have this long appendix and reference section, really, really try and go into, you know, this is based upon this paper and this is based upon this research and this part, well, like, we don't have direct evidence, but we, you know, we know that they probably did something like this, or this is me just kind of speculating based upon what modern organisms do. The narrative of the book starts off with the T-Rex feeding on this triceratops um, with all these birds and pterosaurs kind of waiting for that to happen. We don't have direct fossil evidence that they engaged in that kind of behavior, but that's based upon observations that I've made in places like Yellowstone National Park, where you have you know a bison that I once saw that died near the road, and all these birds were waiting around it because they couldn't access it because the hide was too tough for them to open up. So they could pluck out you know the nose or the eyes or what have you, but they couldn't really get to the good stuff that's in the middle. They needed a bigger carnivore to do that. If well, if that if that's true today. It likely would have been true for a big, you know, scaly animal like Triceratops. It would require something like a T-Rex to come and open up that carcass so that all these other organisms, all the other scavengers could then have a piece of it. So it really was this mix of things that are directly referencing the fossil record and what we feel pretty confident about. Things that were kind of like are hypothetical, but, you know, are likely to either be true or can you know, be tested and better understood or things that like, this is just something that we know that animals do, that this is a way that we know how ecology works. So even if we don't have direct evidence for that for dinosaurs, it's still the same familiar concept that's based upon what we've come to understand about life in general. So that's really what led me to that, that cast of characters is like, what story in particular do they tell about this big change? I gotcha. And that makes sense. When you say the papers you uh, researched or mm -hmm. the, you cited the ones that were researched, how do they have an idea of if this animal was more aggressive or was more this or that? Is there any indication? Because I understand the bone will tell you, oh, it's got this kind of teeth. It's a carnivore. It's in this habitat or some of what you mentioned in the bones. But are they able to attribute a personality to different animals? Yeah, usually it's not so much personality. And I tried to sort of stay away from anthropomorphizing too much. I thought more about, okay, what does this organism like want? What do, what do they need? But in terms of fossilized behavior, there's a whole study um, of fossil behavior that primarily comes from trace fossils. So things like footprints, or if a fish swims along a, a lake bottom, it'll leave a kind of swish in the sand that then becomes preserved. And we say, okay, they fish, they, they swam in this kind of motion. Um, so for example, 
Uh, Triceratops skulls, many of them have lesions, so basically bone damage around the cheek and on parts of the frill, the big sort of bony crest that comes out behind the horns. And paleontologists have looked at Triceratops skulls, and they actually took models to kind of test this and say, okay, what's causing this damage? Could it be that they're locking horns with each other? So they took like two Triceratops skull models, and they kind of put them together in different arrangements, and they found the one that seemed to make the most sense. And from there, they looked for damage on the skulls. So, okay, the damage is exactly where we suppose that it would be if these dinosaurs were locking horns, that they were basically fighting each other. We can't say exactly why or for what reason, but this seemed to be a regular part of their behavior. So there's some kind of conflict between Triceratops, whether it was for mating opportunities or for, you know, um, you know, sort of, sort of, some sort of social reason or whatever it was that they were certainly doing. So even with Tyrannosaurs, we often find them with bites on their face, most large carnivorous dinosaurs, most species that we have any kind of good sample for have bite wounds on their faces, which is consistent with the way uh, alligators and crocodiles fight today, that they don't have, you know, these elaborate arms to kind of like tussle with, like, you know, cats might do. They're primarily all about the head and they're all about biting. So when they fought, they fought each other, they fought each other and bit each other on the face. Um, so it's things like that where like, even if we can't get behind the bone to the kind of personality or is this animal particularly aggressive? And there's always variation in these things too, even now. There are animals of a particular species that might be especially curious and some they're especially shy and some they're especially aggressive and some they're especially retiring. But at least in general, we can look at these trace fossils and get some idea of, okay, like, is this a regular part of that gotcha. animal's behavior? Gotcha. And it's funny you say how they analyze it with the contacting because mm -hmm. that's actually my job i have different materials we spray paint and we put these little black dots on them aim cameras at it and mm -hmm. tension compression all that jazz yeah. so that's so moving into a different side the geography of like so these animals change through this side but what about the earth itself like how did the planet besides the soot how did the geography actually and the climate change over time uh, in, t in what time frame, like, sort of between the impact and like a million years later? A day before the impact. And yeah, mm -hmm. from like 10 years to 100 mm -hmm. years to a million years later. Yeah. So in terms of like the world's geography or how it's moving, we've had plate tectonics, you know, for millions and millions and millions of years. So that's too slow to cause like any major change. The impact didn't really interrupt that very much because that's just so deep the impact you know hit the earth's crust but the forces that are creating these plates and allowing them to move are so they're so deep and they're so much bigger that what that wasn't particularly altered so you still had like for example india was an island and it was moving closer and closer to asia like that's like why we have the himalayas because india basically crashed into the rest of asia and pushed all these mountains up and you still have sort of north america and europe like moving away from each other because you have this mid-atlantic ridge that's spreading out little by little. So the overall look of the planet didn't change all that much, but you had this global dip in average temperature because the impact winter, and then it goes back up again. And then you start to get in the Paleocene, you have this warming climate and that starts to do what we're starting to see now where you have, you know, all this basically fossil, uh, all this uh, greenhouse gas basically going into the atmosphere. It's warming things up. You know, those volcanic, um, 
sort of outburnings that are happening in ancient India were continued, you know, into the early Paleocene, so pumping all this carbon dioxide, methane out into the atmosphere. And yeah. that got to a tipping point where all these methane stores in the ocean, so basically all these methane pockets in the deep sea became mobilized. They got warmed up enough where now methane's coming out of the ocean. And we reached a point called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. So it's about 10 million years after impact and that's like one of the hottest times that there's ever been the planet and it got so warm that like ocean currents in some places reversed so you had cool water going to different places uh rain cycles were totally changed we had more rain at the poles than you had near the equator so you had some areas becoming deserts and some areas becoming rainforests i mean it was so warm by that point that you had alligators that lived you know within the arctic circle um so this is something where it's not directly attributed to the impact per se, but you had, you know, this awful impact on the first day, you know, air temperatures rise, it crisps everything, you have the impact winter and temperatures drop, then global climate starting to stabilize. But through that stabilization, it's getting a little bit warmer until it hits this tipping point and you hit this climate spike before it settles down again. So, and this is something that's always been going on. There are all these different sort of geological and atmospheric forces that are interacting and counteracting each other, you know, pretty constantly that contribute to each other to create our global climate. And then, you know, obviously things like plate tectonics that alter like what the shape of our planet, or at least the land masses look like and how they're connected. So all of those things basically continued the main sort of changes that that happened to the world where like in the area of impact, where you just had this, you know, incredible crater that was created, but there was so much force created that all this water that created this these mega tsunamis you know ran out towards the continent and then kind of rebounded back and buried the crater in sediment that had just been disturbed so if you look at a core section that they've taken from you know the the Chicxulub crater where you know that asteroid hit it's yeah. absolutely chaotic it's just it's just a mess because it's all this destroyed rock and all the sand and stuff that then became piled on top of it so but that's mostly underwater so you can't even really see it unless you basically look at the geological maps for it. So it didn't really alter big picture stuff in, in the global sense, but locally, yeah, it certainly has some of these major effects. When you say locally, do you mean like right where it impacted or maybe 100 or 1,000 miles away? I would say like around ancient Central and sort of northern South America. Um, that's where you would have like the sort of the effects of these mega tsunamis that raced out toward the coast and, you know, crashed on the shores and went miles inland. And then they were so powerful that they actually rebounded off that continental shelf and went back towards the impact crater itself. So it's not like you can, you know, kind of look at that area and say, okay, it kind of looks like a big impact crater is all submerged now and a lot of it's collapsed. And that's why it was so hard to find, you know, oil geologists found it in the 1960s. Geologists in general that were looking for impact craters didn't even really realize it was there until the 1990s. So it's kind of hidden in a sense that it was so destructive that it almost kind of covered itself over by all the um, all the debris that basically got strewn about and then settled back down to cover this crater over. Yeah, and I just have to picture even like the water itself slowly decaying or eroding it to flatten it out. Yeah, it, erosion over time, certainly in a marine environment. So you have something that's already sort of disturbed and distressed and kind of piled there and is going to continue to erode over time. But thankfully, that'll just be the surface. And below that, you still have 
those signatures, okay, like something big hit this place. And something also I found was tsunamis were 100 meters in the sky, even 15 hours after this impact. And remember before I asked how uh, to visualize how big this explosion is, the way I can picture it too is I remember hearing if you put a nuke underwater, like (laughs) deep in a trench somewhere, and you detonate it, it will have no impact whatsoever. Like besides the local area, there'll be no tsunamis, no waves, no nothing, because that's how powerful the ocean is it has that much mass and weight behind it but then you take this meteor crash it down and 15 hours later you still have 100 meter tsunamis in the sky that's quite a difference between the two yeah i mean it always depends like where these things are happening their their force what they hit so if the asteroid had hit somewhere else on the planet um the effects might have been very different so if it hit sort of over an area that has very deep ocean, um, you know, ocean that goes down miles, then maybe it wouldn't have been as bad because all that basically would have to displace so much water that it was slowed down a little bit. And maybe the composition of the Earth's crust in that place would have been different. And you wouldn't have as many of these after effects that transpired. But the fact that it hit a place that was basically near the coast, it was along the continental shelf and that continental shelf was made of ancient reefs. So basically a kind of limestone, the fossilized remnants of reefs that once lived there that are full of these sulfur based compounds, which then contributed to that impact winter that followed. So in a lot of cases, it really was like the worst case scenario. So it's not just a matter of like an asteroid hitting the planet in some place it really mattered that it you know it that it came in at a low angle and then it was very very fast and it hit continental rock so if you think about it this way like if that asteroid had been a little bit slower or the earth's rotation was a little bit faster or if it had been a different place in its orbit or like all these little things that have been just even slightly different this mass extinction would have played out in a very different way or perhaps have not happened altogether so this really was kind of like the worst case scenario in every single respect I also, I heard we're actually in an extinction event today because of all the pollution. That's a whole different thing. One thing I want to ask about with the air, and I remember hearing that oxygen was the reason animals were so big and there's so many plants and there's so much life. There's such high oxygen levels. Did that soot in the air and these plants dying off, is that what reduced that? And is why, besides which animals survived that extinction event itself, is that the reason it doesn't just life didn't just go back to how it was before that event? So there are a couple of different ideas all, all packed up in that one. One of them, like oxygen was relevant to life becoming bigger, but that was about 300 million years ago. So this is like long before the time of the dinosaurs where you had all these coal swamps basically evolving. So you had plants that recently come ashore and started evolving and evolving tree-like sizes on land. And what do plants do? They take in carbon dioxide and they produce oxygen. So they elevated the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. So it was more efficient to breathe for each breath of air. You're getting more oxygen from it. And it also altered the air pressure and that large insects, like those big dragonflies, had to expend less energy to beat their wings to actually be able to to fly and that's why they could get so big and have never really gotten so big since there's been some neat experiments with modern day insects like beetles if you raise them in an oxygen rich environment they get a little bit bigger they don't become like monster size there's still biological constraints about this but they get a little bit bigger um in terms of you know dinosaurs and why they were so much bigger so many of them were so much bigger than what we're familiar with a lot of that has to do with the way they reproduced and parts of their anatomy like many of them had air sacs 
basically coming out of their lungs. So basically you imagine their respiratory system, they had an esophagus and they had lungs, but they also had the system of air sacs that came out from their lungs and invaded their bones, kept their bones light without sacrificing strength. So they were able to just from a biomechanical perspective, get bigger uh, and they're able to breathe more efficiently. But one of the main things for why they got so big is probably because they laid eggs because big mammals today, if you want to evolve a bigger and bigger mammal species, it usually requires gestating their offspring inside for a very long time. African elephants gestate their, their young for more than two years. Uh, large whales, it's very similar. And that means to evolve a larger size, to give birth to a larger offspring that will then grow into a larger adult and so on and so forth, you need to keep that offspring inside longer. And the longer you do that, the more there are chances that something is going to go wrong. It's also usually these animals only have one offspring at a time. They invest a very long time, years and years and years, in raising that particular offspring where dinosaurs got around all that by laying eggs. They didn't have these same constraints in terms of like physiology and energy and sort of investment in their offspring to protect them. They could just lay a whole bunch of eggs. And that it was kind of those possibilities of becoming larger opened up. So it's not so much a matter of like oxygen levels change. There's a great book and a great paper on uh, sort of the paleobiology of the sauropod dinosaurs in particular. Those are those long necked ones that were the biggest things to ever live on the planet that looked at different ideas. Like what the, was it because the climate was warmer or there's more oxygen, but it seems like it was things about dinosaur biology itself that allowed them to get so big and oxygen levels during the Cretaceous are relatively similar to what they were now. And that's the thing that life as we know it now it's kind of we're still dealing with, we're still living in the shadow of this mass extinction. That so many forms of life that we can see around us uh, are present because they're survivors or descendants of those survivors. Even just this morning, I went walking down the street and I saw a dogwood tree. There were dogwood trees in the Cretaceous. Um, you know, there are many familiar plants uh, and other sort of forms of life that are around us that made it through, but we are still kind of in the wake of this mass extinction, we are still kind of, we, we lost that giant size component and the way that life has changed since then, there hasn't really been an impetus for, for life to get bigger and bigger and bigger, except in the seas. Whales today are bigger than fossil whales ever were, and they might get possibly bigger still, but the ocean is a whole different sort of set of biological rules in life on land. Yeah. The ocean seems like it had its own second timeline. And what made us, like, as humans, did our ancestors, were they in the caves? Were they able to pick apart and scavenge? Or were they, what made us able to survive? Well, back in the Cretaceous, there weren't any humans yet. We actually had the very first primates that evolved at the same time uh, that T-Rex was around. So in the same, basically, age rock and rocks are about 68 million years old. So this is about 2 million years prior to the mass extinction. There are little bones and teeth from an animal called Purgatorius, so it looked like a tree shrew. So these are animals that are alive today. Um, if you imagine basically a shrew, if you know what a tree shrew is, just imagine a shrew and put it in a tree and you get a general idea of what it is. It's kind of like a mix between a, a, a shrew and a squirrel almost in the way that it looks. And this little animal, it lived at the same time as the last non-avian dinosaurs. It survived the mass extinction. We find them in the Paleocene. So that's something where it's not even like the extinction happened and mammals took off. Mammals have been around. You know, about since the time of the earliest dinosaurs, they were just small. There were just lots of different species that were like raccoons or aardvarks or flying squirrels that lived alongside the, you know, sort of the age of dinosaurs and the extinction, you know, changed things up for them. But in terms of our specific lineage, the first primates survived this mass extinction. So 
that's a really powerful idea in that it's not just that we kind of came about afterwards. It's that our ancestors could have been snuffed out like in the same mass extinction that primates didn't suddenly appear million years, millions of years later, that if things had just been a little bit different, primates might've gone extinct as well. And we would never have come about. So this is something where our own history is directly involved in this. And it's likely that those primates survive by basically going to burrows. We know today that if an animal like a large tortoise or sometimes an alligator or you know various forms of mammals, if they make a burrow during a forest fire, you're going to find anywhere to survive that you can. So even if you're living in the trees, like these little tree shrew things did at the end of the Cretaceous, they probably found refuge in these underground burrows. And it only takes about three or four inches of soil to really mitigate those heat of heat effects. I don't know how they survived the impact winter, but it's likely that they found a place underground to just make it through that first day and then just kept surviving after that. Gotcha. All right. Makes sense. And the last question I have, Mm -hmm. what was the most shocking that you found when writing this book or even through your research? What really like stood out to you? I think what stood out to me is a lot of what we've been talking about in this discussion and that this mass extinction played out very, very quickly that most species that perished, at least on land, did so within about 24 hours. When you look at other mass extinctions through time, we can track sort of the extinction pulses or who's going extinct when, by when they disappear from the fossil record. And these mass extinctions that happened before, the four previous ones, they often took place over, you know, 100,000 years. In some cases, you know, as long as a million years of just sustained extinction that's going faster than new species are evolving. But in terms of this particular event, you're dealing with something, a really bad day, and then a really bad three years. But that's still basically the blink of an eye compared to these other mass extinctions. So this is not something that was incredibly drawn out and fits those visuals that I grew up with of sort of like dinosaurs, like wandering in these, you know, sort of arid deserts or sort of collapsing because they're emaciated and can't find food in like an ash field, you know, under a darkened sky. Like most of our favorite dinosaurs, they didn't make it past the first day. There's a great paper called survival in the first hours of the Cenozoic that really lays this out. And that's really what it was. This was a matter of, of hours of, of days of, you know, at most three years before life started to change. And I think that shocked me the most is how rapidly and how fundamentally life could change. But then again, on the flip side of it, you know, the book's mostly about resilience, about how life came back, that within a million years, you went from, you know, if we're just talking about mammals, mammals that were no better than a house cat at the end of the Cretaceous to mammals that are the size of a large dog and starting to fill up ecosystems and become more specialized. And not long after that, you have the the origins of like the first whales, the first bats, the ancestors of cats and dogs and things like that. So not just how terrible and violent this was, but basically how quickly uh, life started to thrive in a different way after this mass extinction. It was really surprising to really unpack that and tell that part of the story that hadn't really been told before. Life perseveres, life finds a way. (laughs) It certainly does. And you also reminded me of this comic I saw where you got to be real unlucky to be 200 million plus years of animal life and then just to be walking around and be alive at the time of that asteroid hitting like that day or those following days. You got to be the most unlucky person in the world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the first line of the book is catastrophe is never convenient. You know, these things. Just for them, there was no expecting it. And that was just a matter of making it through. So 
and and these mass extinctions and all these big changes they're going to continue to happen they're just they're they're part of life they're part of what happens but the big takeaway for me is that you know through it like you mentioned a moment ago that life does find a way that life has always survived these events in some form and it's kind of it's humbling in a sense to look back these mass extinctions and you can trace kind of your sense of you know ancestry or connection to these various forms of life through time and that you know we're here because we're sense of survivors and i think that's a really wonderful thing true well riley black thanks so much for coming on the show oh it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me on is there a final message you want to tell the audience uh, I don't have a final message, but if you want to keep up on what I'm doing in my writing, you know, I kind of write all over the place. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Laylaps. It's the same thing on Instagram. It's spelled L-A-E-L-A-P-S. Or uh, on RileyBlack.net. I usually post some of my latest writings and what, what books I'm working on next. And that was Riley Black. To see more information about her, you can click the link in the description. If you're tuning in through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. There's a lot more information, a lot more entertaining content. You can follow on Instagram or Twitter at PodcastTheWay. And don't forget to give a five-star review, like, share the show. Every little bit helps. You can find more information at PodcastTheWay.com. Again, that's PodcastTheWay.com. This is FM 91.7, WHUS Stores at the top of the hour. And FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston, at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.